also a tin teardrop. But I'm doing well, well. I run on laser beams. <laughs> Star Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. Uh, my name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's singular, legendary 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today, the track we are discussing is Pina, which is track 15. It's the second track on side three of Trout Mask Replica. Uh, it was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel is Bill Harkelrode, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar and lead vocals, uh, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals, and in the brief spoken introduction, Victor Hayden, a.k.a. The Mascara Snake on vocals. Uh, the length of this track is 2 minutes and 33 seconds. Uh, my guest today is the uh, content manager and primary contributor to Beefheart.com, Steve Froy. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Oh, really pleased to uh, be able to take part. Thank you. Clearly, as centrally involved in Beefheart.com as you are, you're you're a, a longtime fan, a big fan. What what was your first experience in hearing the music of Captain Beefheart? How were you How were you introduced to it, and what was your initial impression? Well, like a lot of people of my age, um, we have to thank John Peel for our exposure to the good captain. Uh, John Peel, um, he was a DJ. Um, he worked in America for a while where he came across Beefheart in sort of 65, 66. Um, but then he moved back to the UK and worked on the uh, pirate radio ships for a while and uh, then moved on to BBC Radio 1. And uh, from sort of mid-1967, he started playing his import copy of Safe as Milk. So my first introductions were tracks from Safe as Milk. And I would guess that electricity was the one that uh, completely sold me on Captain Beefheart. Um, and the rest of the album... Um, was just extra. I bought it as soon as I could when it was released in this country, which was what, January 68. Never looked back. So what, what kind of stuff have you been listening to um, prior to hearing, hearing Safe as Milk? Were you, were you a blues hound? Because that's certainly the, the blues and rhythm and blues um, influence is, is pretty strong on, on Safe as Milk, although electricity is already pointing in, uh, in the direction of some far off places. Um, no, not really. Um, um, so at that time, I was, what, about 14? And my taste really fairly standard um, pop things. Um, Rolling Stones, The Kinks, Pretty Things, Beatles even. Um, mainly singles, because that's all I could afford to buy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll tell you, um, a bit of a secret, I had... Uh, let's see, three albums before I bought Safe as Milk. 
I had Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. I had Help by the Beatles. And I had The Monkeys' first album. My fourth album was Safe as Milk. So it's quite a big jump. Um, but there was just something that um, touched me. I don't know what it was. Um, but also I was beginning to hear all sorts of different music because 67, there was just this massive outpouring of, of music, um, sure. particularly from the West Coast, etc. So, and a lot of the psych, psychedelic stuff that was uh, in the UK as well. So there's all sorts of new stuff coming out, but for whatever reason, um, the beef art stuff just got through to me. And I, I was always surprised when other people didn't seem to pick up on it in the same way that I did and which in a way made me want to um like it even more <laughs> I think it's my little sure thing. yeah yeah you you get most passionate about the stuff where it it seems to that others don't necessarily or at least a large variety of others don't seem to share that that passion we we hold it uh, we hold it especially dear which is I think the the different people that I've talked to on this show, everyone, this music is valuable to all of them. It's, it's been an important part of their lives in one shade, way, shape or form or another. Um, so from safe as milk, um, the, at, after that, there is a, there was strictly personal and then we're on to, to trout mask replica and trout mask is, is such a, a bold departure from, even the music on Strictly Personal, which was already stretching outside of the boundaries of, of uh, rhythm and blues, what when you initially heard Trout Mask, what what was your what was your take on it? Did you like it immediately, or did it need to did you need to warm up to it? Um, I th I think I was a bit stunned by it um, because I was hoping for something similar to Strictly Personal because I loved that album, I still do. Um, and so when Trout Mask came along, it was so different. Um, but by that time, I was so uh, committed to Beefheart that I knew I had to listen to it and keep listening to it. And it, it wasn't long before it clicked. And it's it's been a part of my musical life since it took a bit of warming to yeah i didn't i didn't jump straight in and say wow yes but i did eventually yeah i've talked to a couple of people who who loved it straight off the bat um usually those were people who are familiar with its reputation before they heard it it but for those who encountered it in the wild for the first time when it came out it, it seems like a period of of um acclimatization to the music was was necessary and then if you stick with it it kind of becomes a part of your dna and then you just you you love it a little more every time you you listen to it um so the the track that we're discussing today is pina um and uh i gave each of my guests an opportunity to select a track that they would like to to speak about in particular and and one of the ones that you uh that you were interested in was Pina and it, correct me if I'm mistaken, but a large, or at least some part of that was due to the contribution of, of Jeff Cotton on this track. Um, is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, when he first asked me to to choose a track, um, my initial thought was Ant Man B because that was the first track I heard from the album. And then I thought, oh, maybe not. And then, and then I thought in uh, Sugar and Spikes, um, and uh, she's too much for my mirror. But then um, it was Peanut because of Jeff's involvement with it. But I think in, in some ways it um, epitomizes Trout Mask, um, which is always claimed to be challenging and uncompromising. And I, I think that certainly can be said for Pina in particular. There, there's a few al uh, tracks on the album that really take a bit of getting to know. Frownland, for a start, that's one hell of a way to start an album. You've got to get it to certainly that. is. Um, Dachau Blues, which is so ugly, um, mm -hmm. but so powerful. Um, Neon Meat Dream, because it's just plain weird. Um, but I think Pina um, is in a, a league of its own, in a way. Um, if you put Drought Mask on at a party, you'd clear the room. But you could do it just with Pina. It, it certainly is not the song I would pick to introduce someone to the album. That, that's for sure. You, you need you need some warm up to get to get to Pina, and and um, a, a great deal of that is, I think, Cotton's um, deliver. He is the only, as he points out in his interview with with Samuel Andreev, um, he's the only Magic Band member other than Van Vliet who ever sang lead on a Magic Band album. Like. Van Vliet had backup vocalists on other records, but That's right. Cotton is the only one to take lead on this and and on the Blimp. And on both tracks, he is he's not exactly singing. He's he's kind of reciting the lyrics in. Um, I think Eric Goodis refers to it as a demented cartoon character voice. Yes, yeah, I'd agree with that. But that's because um, that's what that's that was Jeff's role in the band. <clears throat> Apart from being the scribe, because he um, would have to write out Don's lyrics, either from tapes or from just Don dictating them. And it was also his role when Don said, recite, he would have to recite something. And Pina was a, a regular one. So much so that John French used to get fed up with it because they heard it so much. Yeah, French says says something in his book like, um, it, it, yeah, I think I have the quote right here. Uh, the voice may seem obnoxiously cute the first couple of times and the words hysterically funny. However, with all respect to Jeff, after hearing this recited dozens of times over a series of several months, I could never hear this recitation again and it would be too soon. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting, <clears throat> John says in his book, that that vocal and the song wasn't intended for the album that um, the backing track was for a song called Fox Anne, which was, um, I have no idea what that song was about. It's a rather odd name. But apparently um, Don was having so much trouble fitting the lyrics of this Fox Anne song to the backing track that um, Zappa suggested that perhaps 
Jeff could um, recite um, Aina over the, the backing track, which seems to have happened. Um, and that, in a way, shows how uh, the album is put together. You've got the backing tracks, so you've got the vocals, and they're sort of squidged together. Um, mm -hmm. Any old how, <laughs> because they, they don't fit exactly. There's always this slightly out of phase element of them. And in Pina's case, there's no connection at all. The, the backing track is on its own, doing its own thing. And, and on the top of that, there's Jeff doing his thing. And there's no way he'd be singing it because he was just reciting it. That's what he did. He recited. Uh, it's interesting, I think, as well, that um, Don tried to copy that in Telephone, the track on Dock of the Radar Station. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never thought of that as him doing the, the kind of Cotton-esque voice. But, yeah, that is Telephone is a particularly hysterical delivery yeah. um, uh, on Van Vliet's part. Yeah, and I, I think also that, that Jeff had to do it because Don was usually too lazy to learn, so he wouldn't have been bothered <laughs> to learn the, the words for Dvina, and, and Jeff knew them, so they just wound him up and let him go. It, it is a remarkable vocal performance on, on his part, uh, uh, and Van Vliet doing some kind of demented-sounding scat singing in the background, that, that whooping that he, would, that he would bring in occasionally and shows up again on uh, when Big Jones sets up. Yeah, uh, I'd love to know what the uh, original lyrics that were, I guess, his lyrics were not exactly original, considering that he sort of applied them relatively at random to the music. But I'd, I'd love to know what that uh, Fox Ann song was supposed to sound. I'd, I'd love to know what those words were supposed to sound like. That is an unusual title for, for Van Vliet. Well, yes, it's, it does sound weird. Um, I, I'm not aware of the lyrics existing. Um, but it would be interesting to, to know what they were because the the backing track bears no resemblance to Pina <laughs> at all. And the, and the backing track itself is um, interesting in that there, there are some great little riffs in there, but there's several moments of total chaos. And at one point there's even what appears to be a guitar solo um... I, I was just noticing that earlier. I I know the band has has complained at times, and and others have that uh, the, on the mix of this album that the vocals will sometimes kind of obliterate the music, so it's a little hard to hear what the band is doing. And I I feel like this song is is maybe um, exhibit A for that. In that <laughs> I don't think I had ever really paid much attention to the music beforehand. I was so captivated by. Um, Cotton's delivery in the foreground that I was aware that there was music happening back there, but I had never listened to it terribly closely. And there's a, a YouTube video where someone has, and I don't know exactly how they managed to do this, but they've, they've, they haven't removed Cotton's vocal, but they've mixed it significantly down. So you can actually hear the band a little bit. And, right. and as you say, it's this kind of, it's this kind of, at first, slightly menacing-sounding bluesy shuffle with, as you say, I believe Harkle Road taking a, taking a little what sounds like an improvised um, blues guitar solo, which is pretty, 
unusual by the standards of this album. I mean, there's the the blues influence is always present in in Beefheart's music, but um, an actual blues guitar part on this record outside of China Pig, most of the guitars are, although they're played, you know, with slides and and traditional um, blue uh, blues hardware, so to speak. Most of the riffs themselves do not sound like blues riffs. They're far too angular for that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, usually the the guitars are sort of meshing together, but in this case, it actually stands out to be almost you know stepping forward to do a solo. It's it's very weird. <laughs> The track, track as well, apart from Jeff's manic uh, vocals, you've got that layer between him and the backing track of this rather strange, gurgling, almost baby-like noise that Don's making. So there's the music is even more obscured than um, some of the other tracks. Yeah, between Don's scat singing and that, as you say, that weird gurgling baby sound... Um, and them both being mixed so high that it's again it wasn't until today that I really tried to focus on what was going on musically and I always think of this song as being as you say manic and frantic but by and large the musical backing is not it's a fairly um, fairly medium tempo blues shuffle up until um, French starts playing in, in a kind of double time like somewhere near I think like within the last minute of the track or something like that. Um, yeah. Barnes refers to it as, uh, let me see if I can, yeah, French races off on a spectacular tangent towards the end, leading the band into sounding as if they're suddenly playing the song inside out, which uh, I thought was a pretty good description of it. But yeah, this <laughs> in terms of the, um, the music not really fitting the vote or the vocals being applied almost ominous in a, um, and I'm now blanking on the term that Zappa used to use where it was like applying an, one alien track that was completely unrelated on top of another track. He had some some term that he used for that. Xenochrony, I think that was it. But it, it does feel like uh, it, it really stands out in this one that the, the music and the lyrics don't do not really fit in any kind of traditional way, although it it certainly ends up being a very effective track. Yes, surprisingly so, um, considering they they were never intended to fit together, um, uh, and it just highlights the way that Trout Mask was put together. That you do have this strange unevenness between backing track and vocal, which, which puts you on edge, um, and completely puts some people off. Indeed. So the. Um... The lyrics on this track also to to exacerbate the between, you know, Cotton's vocal delivery, which is uh, kind of strained and hysterical and and according to Barnes actually hurt his throat and the the maniacal uh, scat singing that Van Vliet is doing in the background. Lyrically, this is one of the most kind of visceral and disturbing tracks <laughs> in 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 some ways on on this album, the the character of Pina, who I gather showed up in a lot of the... Don would write a lot of little stories, and Pina was one of the many re recurring characters. That's right, and yes. 
one of the one of the the cavalcade of characters that shows up on on Trout Mask Replica. It's, every other song, it seems, is introducing some new personality into this his personal pantheon. But the the lyrics on this are um, uh, particularly surreal, particularly visceral and biological. You're having images like out enjoying the sun while sitting on a turned on waffle iron smoke billowing up from between her legs made me vomit beautifully and then the uh uh Ch- pina pleased but sore from sitting chose to stub her toe and view the white pulps horribly large in their red pockets it's like this is this is like body horror kind of imagery in this in this track and yet it's delivered with this kind of um cartoonish cheerfulness that that seems to ex- exacerbate for me anyway i'm speaking from my own perspective that i i've always found the lyrics on this track particularly off-putting and disturbing yes they they give that impression don't they and i i keep trying to figure out what is going on there but it's almost impossible strangely the view i guess of it is that it's a couple of kids playing out in the garden and um but done with a sort of strange um, acid cartoon layer over it of freakishness. <laughs> um, and the kids' imaginations are running riot with insects and this, that, and the other. Um, but I could be way off, obviously. It's very difficult to determine what on earth Don was on about sometimes. He just loved words. And this seems to be a lot of words just being vomited out almost um, yeah there is a stream of consciousness quality to it but um his his skill as as a wordsmith and his his as you say love of words it just creates these incredibly v- vivid and vibrant images that don't necessarily make literal practical sense but that are almost tactile, like her little head clinking like a barrel of red velvet balls or um, uh, the tiny green phosphorus worms that one, uh, one yellow butterfly, the same size, it's droppings were tiny green phosphorus worms. It's like the, the images that this creates are so uh, striking, even though they're not, they don't necessarily make, any kind of literal sense yeah they, they almost make some sense but once you start looking at them the sense disappears they're like dream imagery in that respect That's they're, they're right. kind of yes it is it's like it's like you're you're inside a dream things change so quickly um from one thing to another and they can be nice or they could be nasty depending um and just things blend in to one and another and so on and peter exclaims that's the raspberries which apparently <laughs> was a regular catchphrase in some of these stories that tom was writing which i i have to wonder if that was just another one of those phrases he liked the sound of like fast and bulbous which which shows up at the at the beginning um of this track with uh he and and victor hayden recording their little back and forth or if it seems like a lot of things that seem bewildering to us were kind of in personal images or inside jokes so maybe that's the raspberries is some inside joke of his we'll we'll never know yeah that's right yeah it's very difficult to know where, where that one came from the fast and bulbous lots of different um clue well people's suggestions to what it could be but i think the most uh 
common one is it relates to a car being faster than others. Um, well, that's interesting. Which I think works quite well considering Don's love for cars. And the it, tin it always... teardrop as well, which looks like a piece of chromium uh, on a car, you know, in the 50s cars, American cars. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, It always throws me that he was a car guy. He, he doesn't, so much of him does not seem like a guy who would have been into cars and hot rods, but I guess that was a huge part of his teenagehood and young adulthood in, in Lancaster, California was he was, he would, they would, the magic band would play hot rod shows and he was into cars. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. There's lots of car imagery and certainly on, on trail mask, quite a lot crops up and he, he did like his cars. Um, he always had cars, even when the band were, you know, starving, he still had a car. A very good car at that. Uh, that that must have rubbed them the wrong way. I certainly would rub me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just rubs salt in the wounds. So I know that you you are um, back on on Jeff Cotton. I, I know you've done some work on on a website focusing specifically on his work That's prior right. to and post um, Magic Band. Now he joined around the time of Strictly Personal. Is that right? Um, he joined um, November sixty seven. Um, Ry Cooder had left, um, Jerry McGee had joined for a short period of time, um, but he, he didn't want to carry on. And um, Jeff was known by uh, John French because they'd played in bands before. And so he was called in uh, to on second guitar. Um, he was there to record the Mirror Man stuff um, around that time. And... Uh, obviously played on all the strictly personal stuff. He brought quite a sort of bluesy feel to things. He'd been um, pretty much a professional musician since the age of 14 mm-hmm. when he was still at school. He actually had special dispensation at school to grow his hair long. <laughs> quite bizarre. Yeah, I remember him mentioning that. I, I listened to his his interview with, with um, Samuel Andreev, which is, as far as I know, one of, if not the only interview he's given, or at least in recent years. Absolutely, yes, because um, he pretty much went off grid after um, uh, he left the band Moo with Mel Fankhauser. Um, I made contact with him around about, uh, probably around about 2000, I think. Um, My website about him um, which I call Space Blues, was um, was online. And Jeff's sister had stumbled across it, and uh, she emailed me to say she'd found it, and she'd learned lots of things about Jeff that she didn't know, because she's quite a bit younger <laughs> than he is. Um, and she said that um, she would let him know about it. And I thought, oh, good God. <laughs> uh, what are you going to say? Um and sure enough, sort of, I don't know, a month or two afterwards, I get this email from Jeff. Um, and he was, he was okay about the website because he realised I wasn't um, trying to exploit him in any way. I was doing mm-hmm. it um, for the best reasons. And so from that point on, we'd make occasional contact, but he never wanted to be interviewed or discuss details or anything mm-hmm. um he, he would perhaps contact me and say oh i i disagree with what, with what you've put on the site um that didn't happen or it happened to somebody else 
because I'd had other people contacting me, giving me information, you see. And so mm. if there was something there that uh, was wrong, he'd let me know. Um, uh, and then his wife died a couple of years ago. Um, and I think that has uh, changed his perspective on things. And he's decided uh, to, sp to spend a, most of his time on music um, and getting himself out in that arena again and, and doing mm -hmm. the interview with uh, Sam was um, a big step for him. I'm exceedingly jealous of Sam for getting that first interview, I have to admit. <laughs> but it's great that it's out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've spoken to Jeff a few times recently. He's a bit more active. He's, he has um, a new album um, in the pipeline, um, which hopefully may be released this year, all being well. Um, it's sort of in the vein of uh, the Moo type of music. Um, okay. But he he plays some just astonishing slide guitar. He, he hasn't lost uh, his chops in that respect. I'll be interested to hear that when it, when that comes out. I I had never really heard Moo, um, but in preparation for this for this discussion, I was listening to some of it earlier today. And it is it, one thing that's kind of uh, that I find interesting about about Cotton is so many members of the Magic Band, when playing in the Magic Band, their their style was kind of shaped by what Van Vliet wanted from them. Like like Mark Boston had to kind of come up with a new way of approaching the bass in order to be able to play what Van Vliet wanted him to play. Yeah. Whereas Cotton's style seemed very developed from the, from the beginning, like on strictly personal, his guitar playing is recognizably him. Like that sounds like Jeff Cotton. And then in Moo, um, he sounds like Jeff Cotton. Like his, his playing is, is, is such a, uh, um, is so immediately, uh, striking and distinctive it and I, I do wonder if that's he was a professional musician from such a young age and was able to kind of develop his own style and his own musical personality that um was not and so he wasn't completely dominated by by van vliet's requests that's that's probably true yeah I, he, he seems to have been a, a gifted natural guitarist and somehow found his voice quite early on, I think. Um, obviously, the stuff he was doing in the early days, Merle and the Exiles, was very, you know, poppy um, stuff. Sure. Um, but that's the only stuff that survived um, because he released several singles, um, which had a varying success, actually. Uh, did quite well out of it. Um, after the Exiles broke up, he, he was in various other bands um, which played sort of Yardbirds type, blues type music. Um, the Illusions was, was one of them. Um, and he was in um, 
Oh. I lost lost the name there with uh, John French and Mark Boston. Oh, uh, Blues in a Bottle. Blues in a Bottle, thank you, yeah. Um, for a while, uh, until uh, John got drafted in the Beefheart band. Uh, so, you know, he, he'd had time to, to develop his style, but he obviously seems to hit the ground running with Strictly Personal. You know, he was only Absolutely. in the band um, a matter of weeks, and he was in there on acid doing Mirror Man, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Replacing Ry Cooter, no less. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, some big boots to fill, wasn't it? But uh, he, he, he did it. Um, and I, I, I love, uh, I said before, Street Personal and, and that band, Street Personal Band, mm-hmm. and all the stuff they did. Um, when he was in Moo, obviously it was a completely different feel, but the quality of his, his guitar playing, it's, it's tremendous. So I'm looking forward to it, to his new stuff. I've heard snippets of it. It's really tantalizing. Nice, yeah. I, I'm glad to hear that he's that he's making music and and seems to be doing well. And and based on the interview, seems to have um, come to peace with his his musical legacy and and the the work that he did with the Magic Band and and beyond. It seems like. Um, Van Vliet's various psychological torments that he would put the band through. It, it it's from what from what he said and from what Cotton said in the interview, it sounded like he needed to do quite a bit of work on himself to overcome some of the trauma from that. The the kind of cult like mind control um environment that, that uh Van Vliet created in the in the Trout House. Yeah, yeah, that's quite right. Um I, I was really surprised when I, I heard the interview how positive Jeff was about Don. Um, that he still loved that music and still revered Don as being so creative. Um, so that was quite an eye opener because I thought he had been so traumatized by his time in the Magic Band, psychologically as well as physically, um, that uh, he would still be quite negative about it but obviously it's not but as you say he did hint that he'd had to work through a lot of that trauma um maybe that was part of the reason he decided that uh, when he got married that he would step away from the music scene completely um, because he decided when he married that he would just concentrate on his marriage and consequently on his family rather than uh, splitting his, his effort between them and, and music. Although he's always played music but mm-hmm. for, for his own enjoyment or for, for friends. Well, it, it was certainly, it was good to hear that he has, has come to a healthy place with it and, and is, I mean, as well, he should be justifiably proud of the work that he did in, in the magic band and has, has been able to ultimately forgive Van Vliet for the, the, um, pain that he put him through it seems like all of the all the magic band members have had to in their own way come to terms with being both a part of this remark incredible phenomenon of of this of this band and and you know the albums that they contributed to be it the sir like my decals off or what have you and also the 
just the personal pain of of having dealt with Van Vliet, who I gather mellowed a bit as he in later incarnations of the band, but could could be a, an absolute tyrant uh, at the worst of times. Yeah, because in the early days, he was trying to find that voice. And he put those poor guys through hell to find it for him. Once they'd found it, subsequent Magic Band members had a much easier time because, in a way, they knew what they were working with. Right, there was a template. Yeah, because the, these first guys came into the Beefheart Band hoping to be playing blues-based stuff. And suddenly, what are they doing? Right. <laughs> They're doing Pina, for heaven's sake. They're doing Dachau Blues. Um, it was a huge shock for them. Um, it's just staggering what they achieved in that time. Um, we've got so much to thank them for, for sticking with it and doing it. And no kidding. And managing to come out the other side reasonably sane and producing this thing that 50 plus years later we're still there's still this awe-inspiring masterwork yes that nobody has come close to bettering or sound anything like because it is such an individual voice um nobody else has come anywhere near it that they they can't copy it because it is done. And without him, uh, I'm running out of words for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I hit the same problem every episode of when, when I I um I can't remember who the guest was, but uh, on one of the one of the previous episodes, I I said I felt like one of the monkeys at the beginning of 2001, kind of flailing against the monolith, trying to figure out what this thing is, just just by talking over each. each talking about each song on this album bit by bit it's it's still um it, it's not something i'm ever going to be able to fully encompass my feelings on or my guests feelings on or or the kind of critical and cultural impact it's had all i can do is just take a tiny little tiny little chip of it and try and and point out how how special it is yeah so uh for um when darren is hosting the show he rates every track um I, I say on every episode, I rate every track five out of five because I believe it's really impossible to compare them to anything. Um, so this track is five out of five for me. I will say, if you are a Captain Beefheart fan and you're trying to introduce someone else to Captain Beefheart's music, maybe don't start with this one because it is one of the more abrasive tracks on the album, um, pr- predominantly due to the to the vocals and to the uh, rather disturbing lyrical content, which just as an aside, there's a really... Uh, incredible clip um it's on gary lucas's soundcloud of the filmmaker david lynch reciting the lyrics to this song which something about him reciting them in that measured midwestern voice of his makes it even more disturbing somehow because he's just it's like each limit image gets to linger in your head longer and also <laughs> he pronounces it penna i'm not sure why um yes that's that is strange i'm presuming that he's naturally heard the track he's just reading the lyric. Yeah, that was kind of my that was kind of my thought as well. Um, but his, I'm going to see if I can link to his um, his recitation of this as well because it's it's uh, it's worth a listen. Um, yeah, and it is. Uh, 
sorry, John. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, a measure of um, the strangeness of Peter is that practically nobody has done a cover of it. Now, I, I collect covers of Beefheart songs, and I've got so many of them. Um, and I'm only aware of one uh, cover of Pina. Um, a duo on YouTube attempted it. And they, they do quite well, considering. But nobody else has, has bothered to attempt it. I think that says something. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to see if I can find that, that duo. What what instrumentation do they use? Just, just oh, out they're of curiosity. Two guitars, yeah. It's, uh, guitars? Okay. Yeah, it's a girl and a guy. Um, uh, I think Ethel Higginbottom, I think they're called. <laughs> something peculiar like that. But uh, yeah, they did quite a reasonable job at it. They, they've done a, a several uh, of Don's tracks. They even had a go at um, uh, Dakel Blues, I believe. Wow. Rightly. Yeah, they seem to be I, fearless, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll have to see if I can find a link to that, and I'll, I'll include that uh, in the episode data. Uh, so, Mr. Froy, if you would like to rate this track, you are welcome to. You don't have to. Um, and if there uh, are any plugs or additional information or anything else that you would you would uh, like to share with the listening audience, the the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Um, well, I'm I'm with you. It's a five. Um, the whole album is so special. It's. You, you can't rate one track against another. Um, it's like saying which of your children is the best, uh, <laughs> your favourite. Um, you can't do it. Um, it's it's just uh, impossible. Um, it's an album I still play, still enjoy. Um, and I hope I'll go on enjoying it. I'm sure I will. Well, it, um, it, it, thanks for allowing me the chance to talk about it. Absolutely, and uh, you are um, you are involved deeply in Beefheart.com. You have the um, uh, Space Blues. Was that the name of the cotton site? Um, the um, Jeff Cotton site. It's on uh, frogseye.co.uk. Um, I've got a couple of things on there, but Space Blues is is one of the areas on that side and do you have any kind of social media presence that you that uh you wish to promote uh well um the beefart.com which which we call the radar station does have a presence on facebook um captain beefart radar station i'm also on facebook as well but uh, that, that tends to be just uh personal stuff really Sure. Understood. Uh, I will uh, have the radar station, um, both the URL and the Facebook link in the, the episode uh, data for this. Uh, if you want to follow track by track, we are on Twitter at underscore track by track. I am on Twitter at Joel A. Bakker. That's B as in boy, A-K-K-E-R. I am also on Instagram under the same handle. And uh, Mr. Froy, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us about this track. You're welcome, Joel. Thanks very much for asking me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.